You are listening to The Exchange. I'm your host, Dr. Lorraine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are going to be talking about understanding trauma. And I have one of my first return guests, Amber Keir, who has done our podcast earlier this season on anxiety. And if you have not heard it, you definitely want to go back and listen to it. So Amber, thank you so much for being my guest again on the Exchange Podcast. It is so great to have you with me. Welcome. Honored. Thank you so much. So for those of you who have not gotten a chance to listen to the anxiety, the one on um, dealing with anxiety, like I mentioned, you do want to listen to it. But for those who have not yet heard it, Amber, will you please just give us a brief introduction about where you're from, your family, your ministry, the education that you have. Um, Just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, Well, I live in Columbus, Ohio uh, with my family. And my husband and I have pastored here for five years. Um, And I completed my graduate degree in marriage and family family studies and uh, have a small private practice. But probably uh, my biggest challenge is homeschooling my kids. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, don't, I don't do it without help, but it's still probably the hardest thing I do, which um, makes completion like a conquest all the more sweeter. Um, and I just happened to finish homeschooling my son yesterday. So like I feel lifted today and uh, it's really good. Um, but as, as my introduction relates to today, I think um, particularly with trauma, I think I started to use um, trauma-informed care probably from the beginning of my practice. But I didn't really pay close attention to the prevalence of trauma until I started my private practice, because while I felt passionate about coming alongside people in their journey toward healing, I was pretty sure I wasn't up to the task of dealing with trauma, to be honest. But I began to notice that trauma is really more common than I actually believed, which helped me start um, redefining in my own mind what trauma really even is. And this is when I began my journey to become a certified clinical trauma professional and recently became trained professionally in EMDR. Awesome. And so your private practice is called Facing Forward? Forward Facing Practice. Forward Facing. Okay, the practice. I almost had it right. (laughs) So that's the private practice that you have in Ohio. So um, I wanted to ask in your private practice, um, since we are talking about trauma, what are some of the types of clients that come to you for help with trauma? What are the, what kind of, uh, yeah, cases do you see? Um, Well, really, I would say that the types of clients that come to me for therapy come with depression and or anxiety and really are probably experiencing these as a result of trauma, often without even realizing it. So it's, to be honest, rarely do I see clients that come directly because of trauma. Um, like at least that's not being the presenting problem. Right. And I believe that could be due to the way we handle the stigma of mental health, uh, because one of the largest mitigating factors against trauma is who is there for you at that particular time. Um, and trauma doesn't have to become a big issue if the foundation of your safety hasn't been destroyed. But if you don't feel safe in these ways, you know, other things happen and you end up with symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, and just to be kind of clear about 
how trauma kind of presents itself and understanding the context of everything. Um, one out of eight kids will witness physical violence between their parents. They grow up to be adults eventually. And those adults sometimes experience depression and anxiety for reasons of how they experience trauma. A larger number of kids get beaten very hard by their caregivers and a very large number of people in general, but women in particular have sexual experiences that were clearly unwanted, leaving them confused and enraged. So I, like that it's not always that reason that people come in, um, but typically it's because you know, many times trauma can unearth whatever after you've been married 15 years, or maybe I've been seeing a client for five or 10 years, and we really don't uncover trauma uh, until, you know, we've had a season of working with one another, like through some things, and then we'll go to just maybe once a month or once every now and then, and then we come back and then sometimes trauma unresolved trauma will surface again. So uh, the type of clients that typically come that I work with about trauma um, are usually depressed and anxious. That was so those time. are symptoms. No, those are, that's really great because it's helping people understand that you people don't usually come out and be like, I came because of this and this. Like, it's like I'm experiencing the symptoms and then it's your job as a counselor, as a therapist to kind of like pull back all the layers of the onion and figure out where the source of the anxiety and the depression is coming from. And, you know, like you said, it kind of takes a while after being able to build that relationship with somebody and trust them and then being able to reveal it. So that's quite a task as a therapist. It can be. It can be. <laughs> and then people are like, oh, wow, that's, that's why I'm having these symptoms is because I have unresolved trauma or things that I don't want to talk about or want to deal with. But, you know, after they kind of get that out, then it's a totally different thing um, moving towards healing. So I wanted to ask, you did mention EMDR, and this is something that I'm very interested in and is uh, something that people are using, people are hearing a lot about, but they don't understand it completely. So can you explain to our listeners what is EMDR? Yeah, Um so I'm, I'm still pretty new at EMDR, but I, I am trained certified there. So EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. And it's specialized treatment uh, originally developed by Francine Shapiro. Uh, although when she developed it, it was with some medical trauma, interestingly, and um, it was just EMD with her. And so like they expanded research and it turned into EMDR uh, with the reprocessing, but it was for people with history of trauma or a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. However, over the years, it's become uh, integrated into treatment for other disorders, such as eating disorders, substance abuse disorders, complicated grief, panic disorder, dissociative disorders, and many other things that have a trauma component associated with them. But um, I'll try to keep this in a nutshell. Um, really, but most individuals wonder what actually occurs in a typical MDR session. Um, and so I, so just to give you some highlights here, an EMDR session is typically only about an hour unless you're doing an intensive um, mm -hmm. session. And there are eight phases of treatment and the client and therapist really prepare by focusing on a troubling memory or what we call a target 
And one of the most important keys is identifying the belief that he has about himself connected to that negative memory. Um, so uh, whatever that belief is, and, and you spend a lot of time working on that because it's not something, and we'll talk about this, I think, as we talk about trauma some more, but it's not like, it's not something that has language a lot of times. Trauma, you don't always say like, I feel this way because of this. You know, it's, it's not something that you use in everyday language. So finding those words is, is really important because we're dealing with a part of the brain um, that, that doesn't have language. So formulating the, then a positive belief that you have about yourself. So probably giving an example would be good. So to be transparent, if I was dealing with a sexual assault that victim, the person might believe I'm dirty. Mm -hmm. And so the client works to formulate a positive belief that they would like to have about themselves instead, which is I'm a child of God. I'm in control of my life and I'm washed by the blood of the lamb, which makes me clean. And all those, all the physical sensations and the emotions that accompany the memory are identified in the session in preparation. So like, and to be clear, an EMDR session isn't going to start with like the reprocessing. There's going to be some foundational sessions too, but the individual then goes over the memory and we focus on external stimulus that creates bilateral or side to side eye movement. So for me, it looks like I'm moving my two fingers back and forth across the screen, or if I'm live with a person, cause you can do EMDR virtually. Um, and after each set of bilateral movements, and that's, uh, there, there are other ways that you can do it. You can look at lights, you know, there, there can be dots, there can be a sound or a metronome or something, but typically for me, I use my fingers, um, and I go back and forth. And after each set of bilateral movements, I check in with the individual and the process continues until the memory is no longer disturbing because what's happening is the individual is actually processing that trauma with both hemispheres of their brain stimulated. So that's like a mouthful right there, but it works because of the bilateral stimulation. Um, mm. it, it bypasses the area of the brain that has become stuck due to the trauma and prevents the left side of the brain from self-soothing the right side of the brain. So we have to have the bilateral stimulation while we're talking or while we're processing. You had a question. So you're basically, I'm just kind of thinking while you're explaining this is like you're basically reprogramming your brain. And yeah. that's what I'm hearing you say. It's like, we're doing this process and it's kind of helping these parts of the brain maybe connect or just reprogramming it, just hitting the reset button. And maybe that's not the right exact wordage, but it just feels like it's just reprogramming. And so I've, in my studies have seen many, many wonderful um, reports and, and outcomes and successes that have actually been measured in studies and professional studies that show uh, how effective this is in helping people to get over trauma. And that's so wonderful that you are, you know, and you can't just do this with anybody. Like you have to be certified. Like you have to go through this sort of additional process um, to, to make, to be able to offer this to your clients. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What, what it can, what in EMDR isn't for everyone. So like there, there's sometimes some things, um, sometimes clients get really dizzy and kind of nauseous for a lot of reasons. And so, you know, there can be a prescription of Zofran sometimes to keep people from wanting to vomit because you're, you're, you know, depending on how fast your fingers are going or how much bilateral stimulation you're going through. Um, it's, it can be challenging for people, but hopefully it can result in increased 
insight regarding like these previously disturbing events and like the long held negative thoughts mm-hmm. um, that we've stored about ourselves that have grown out of these um, traumatic events. Um, and so we, you can, like a client can come to realize this and, and have tremendous healing when they felt really stuck by something because this insight you're, you said we're reprogramming the brain. Yeah. We're kind of waking up the quiet brain, um, that's that where a lot of trauma is stored and we're giving it some language and, and suddenly, uh, it changes how you feel about yourself based on the event that happened. And so that's why we identify those things. And I, and, um, it, it, it's very important to get that target. Right. I think. Mm-hmm. And we're going to come back to this part and talk a little bit more about this, but I wanted to go into what are the major signs that someone is suffering from trauma. So, you know, from the outside looking in, if somebody is no, what are the things that they're going to look for, or even not just in somebody else, but in themselves, it's like, okay, this isn't just, and we mentioned depression, anxiety, those are some of the symptoms, but things that they can look for to be like, you know what? I think I have some unresolved trauma or this person that I'm noticing this and this and this, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think individuals really respond to trauma in different ways. Uh, It's subjective. So what may be traumatic for you might not be traumatic for me, depending on prior experiences. But um, some of the things uh, that clients present with or complain with, or um, maybe externally, if you're just looking at someone uh, having night terrors, um, Mm -hmm. real edginess or irritability, poor concentration, it's very similar to some of the symptoms of anxiety, Uh, mood swings, inability to experience pleasure and joy, um, inability to connect and show empathy. Um, Those are not exhausted, but they're just a few, like just feeling really dissociated, like you can't deal, like functioning is collapsing. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to mention to you, because I've talked on the podcast about, I actually did something about PTSD, just something about my own sort of experiences. And I've mentioned that needles are kind of one of those things, but I wanted to mention this again to you, Amber, so you can kind of maybe walk us through what this looks like, you know, from the the clinical therapy side. But I had mentioned uh, that when I was 21, and this was a long time ago, but this 21, that I actually was, had back surgery, had three back surgeries for scoliosis. It was very traumatic, three back surgeries within one week. My rods in my back were broken. They had to go put in new hardware. You know, it was very difficult physically, but, you know, I've always been kind of afraid of needles, had bad experiences, was dehydrated, IVs, all that stuff. But anyway, during this surgery, I had an IV one arm, had one on the other arm. And one of the things that um, stood out to me, or one of the things that happened during that time is I had an IV, the main IV was in the right side of my neck. And having an IV anywhere is, oh, but somehow having it in your neck was just like so much. And so after that happened, um, it seems like every time, and even to this day, not so much, you know, as much nowadays, but still when somebody would talk about blood, when somebody would talk about something gory or needles, I wouldn't even be thinking about it, but my right hand will automatically do this whole thing where I will put my hand over my neck, right? Where that needle went into my neck. And of course it's not that, you know, there, it, this happened so long ago, but somehow 
I am realizing, what are you doing, Lorraine? You have your hand on your neck. Why? Because that's kind of where that I, I call it phantom pain. I mm-hmm. called it this kind of feeling of this phantom pain. And, you know, not many people can pick it up, but people that are close to me and know me and know what this is like, they can pick that up of like, oh, she's having, I would say a flashback or this phantom thing. So I guess I want to kind of, with my own experience and for maybe people that have had different experiences, but kind of can, can, um, can relate to that. How does that affect the brain? You were talking about how it's stored in the back of your brain. So kind of, if you can like briefly just walk us through, what would that kind of look like from a clinical therapy perspective? Uh, Well, first of all, I want to say surgery is traumatic for anyone and have three surgeries in one week um, that I can only imagine what kind of trauma you experience from all of that. Um, But okay, so to lay a foundation for this, I think just understanding trauma very basically is that it's something that happens to you that makes you so upset that it sort of overwhelms you, right? Actually, trauma is not the event that happens. It's actually the trauma is how you respond to it. So the understanding that we're getting to here is that sometimes we store trauma physically in our bodies and working with those physical sensations while thinking it through or processing can help us get unstuck. So that's what something like that looks like in therapy. Um, but traumatized people have a tremendous problem. As I said earlier, experiencing pleasure or joy, because the imprint of trauma is on the core perceptual part of your brain. So the part of the brain that doesn't have any cognitions or language is normally very quiet. And now it continually is sending messages to you that I'm not safe. Uh, The event is over itself, but you continue to react to things as if you're in danger. So, so uh, if you are, if your memory is stored in your brainstem and you need to somehow move that to sort of the prefrontal cortex, this is very brainy talk right now, (laughs) the prefrontal cortex, which is your thinking brain and give it some language to say like, what is it exactly is happening? And you do have to sort of bypass, um, you know, the, the fear, but, or you have to feel the fear and you actually have to feel and experience. And that's something really that happens in EMDR, Lorraine. Um, Mm -hmm. when, when you experience the trauma, whatever that target is, um, you, you kind of stored that somewhere where you didn't actually feel everything. You didn't want to feel because feeling what was happening would have been too hard and mm-hmm. too overwhelming at that moment. So when we do EMDR, we're kind of waking up that memory and we're asking you, like as EMDR therapists, we're asking you to, to just process that and actually feel everything. So uh, I'm sorry that I'm kind of backtracking there to EMDR, but when we're talking about the brain specifically, and you're having um, uh, an experience like what you're experiencing uh, with feeling this phantom pain about something that happened a long time ago, um, Mm -hmm. you, you couldn't, you probably were feeling pain in so many places. That was maybe the least of it, but, but that's what that, like that's a memory that you have. Maybe it even makes you nauseous or like makes your throat feel closed up or whatever. You have experienced that in your body. Like you stored it in your body somewhere. And so we kind of wake that up and we move it to the front uh, of your, your thinking brain and we try to get you to feel it. And so something that happens a lot of times in an EMDR session um, 
a, a client would get nauseous or um, because of the event, or maybe they feel that pain in, in their neck as we're reprocessing because our brains are very powerful. God created us that way. And so we can store that, even though we don't have language for it, we can store that memory and almost feel it like it's like it's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know, I kind of went off and around and all over the place, but yeah, we're talking about brainstem stuff and, and in the middle of your brain, uh, the EMDR really lights up the limbic system. So that's kind of middle brain stuff. The amygdala is there. And then again, I, I talked about the, the prefrontal cortex, which is the thinking brain. And we need to give the, the memories and the feelings that you have some language. And once you do that, then you can identify that you are not the worst thing that ever happened to you. Right. Um, and, and you can identify something more positive. Uh, like I survived, you know, I'm a survivor of this mm-hmm. and I have this scar, this pain, um, because of this, but I'm not in danger anymore. Mm-hmm. And what you're kind of mentioning in all of that, as the first thing that I think of as we're talking, I know many people have read the book and I'm still in the process of reading The Body Keeps Score. Mm-hmm. And, and that's exactly what that is, is that the body keeps score. And for me, that, that would be the right side of my neck that has kept score for all of these years. And, you know, not to the extent it doesn't bother me or but it is because, like you said, it, it is stored in a different part of the brain. And so therefore it's being processed completely different. And so that's kind of how that the trauma in your, when you do experience some kind of trauma, like how you, you didn't say it was the trauma itself. It was like how you react or how that is stored. It just changes, has some changes that happen to your brain and the way that it's processed. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, and I, I already kind of know the answer to this, but I really want to ask is, can someone who has experienced trauma, you know, find healing and how can they do that? And I know we talked about EMDR, which is one of the ways, but are there any other sort of other kind of ways that a person can find healing after they've experienced something like that? Medical, you know, sexual assault, physical, whatever that may be. Absolutely. The answer is absolutely. They can um, find healing and to answer um, with some really practical things. And I don't want to overwhelm, but there are some really practical ways that you can find healing. And these are sort of long-term strategies, uh, but they consider the whole person. And I'm going to borrow some of these from author John Deloney, but I think you have to start with examining um, the ecosystem of your life. So that's going to be number one. And I think I have five of these. Um, what, what we understand about ecosystems is that there's a need to be balanced, right? So we want to pay attention to your physical, your spiritual, and your mental health. So mm-hmm. find a home group in your church, get connected. And I'm going to talk about being connected later. So pay attention to your ecosystem, the physical, spiritual, and, uh, and um, mental health needs, and then pay attention to your relationships. And this is important for people who, um, clients who are coming because they aren't just, they haven't just experienced trauma in their past. Maybe they're regularly experiencing trauma day to day. So have to be safe. Pay attention to your relationships. Pay attention to your financial security. Pay attention to your cultural and family expectations. This is something we don't spend enough time on, I don't think. How are you defining your relationship with these you must be brave and you have to look at your current and your past traumas. You have to, you have to pay attention to your living situation. Like I said, in your relationships, 
what in your uh, what is your meaningful connection at work? Do you have a meaningful connection at work? It's so important to do work that is meaningful. What are you doing? What is your connection there? Examine your ability to feel safe, valued, loved. And lastly, take a really good look at your boundaries. Um, so that was like part of the one, but then you also have to ask yourself some soul searching questions and this, uh, and I'll try to read them slow if anybody wants to write them down, but prayer, you ask God to give you clarity of mind and body. Jesus declares in Matthew 22, 37, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. So you have to ask yourself, how does my current environment make me feel safe? What past traumas and painful relationships have I not dealt with and need to address? So really important soul-searching questions. Am I honoring my body with good habits? Mm-hmm. If the answer to your question is no, then we need to reprocess something there because somewhere along the line, you started believing a lie from the enemy that said that you you know, weren't, weren't valued, that your body isn't the temple. So am I honoring my body with good habits? What forms of distraction, numbing or comfort am I addicted to? Mm-hmm. Hard questions. What feelings or fear, fears make me retreat and hide or run? Oh, that one, that I, I could spend a minute on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the third thing I want you to do, beside these soul searching questions, the third thing is learn how to grieve. Lorraine, I don't think we know how to grieve. We yeah. have to acknowledge what we've lost what happened to us or what didn't happen, even though we were longing for it. Grieving, grieving isn't comparing losses. It's shining a light on your pain and taking away the power and mystery of the darkness. We cannot heal from our trauma until we've processed it. Mm-hmm. And the fourth thing, uh, see a professional therapist, not a life coach or someone who has a certification. Those are respectable and worthy callings and professions, but if you're really struggling and you feel stuck and nothing seems to help, see a professional therapist, mm-hmm. um, I have one that's certified in trauma or EMDR and find the right one. It's not a one size fits all. It's not just like one stamp who your insurance uh, will pay. Uh, it's, it's more important to that. It's personal. And a good therapist is worth their weight in gold. Um, so counselors, psychologists, marriage and family therapists, ministers, coaches, and mentors, they should all be a part of that healing process. And then the fifth thing that I'm going to suggest, I'm sorry, I'm a list person, you can tell probably, um, <laughs> invest, invest in new or existing relationships. And I made this the last one because I want to really spend a minute talking about this. A sense of community and people being there for each other is a critical part of healing from trauma. Mm-hmm right after Jesus declares in that verse that I read above to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, which is the first and greatest commandment he follows with love your neighbor. And he says that all the law and prophets hang on those too. So community relationships and connection is more important than we realize. And to be clear, I don't mean social media community. We're profoundly interdependent people as long as our relationships are intact. So find relationships, new connections, invest in new or existing relationships. So there was a, a, a list for you. <laughs> I answered the question though. <laughs> Thank you. No, I, I appreciate your list and I appreciate things that are very practical. And the things that were coming to my mind, Amber, as you're talking about community is, I, I know that I've read some of the studies, so have you have of the fact that when people have 
who have experienced trauma, if they already have a support system in place, they are less likely to have, um, you know, trauma rock their world. And I say that just more symptoms or more issues. Whereas somebody who has a traumatic experience and does not have a good support system in place, it's going to be more devastating to them. They're going to suffer more through that trauma than mm -hmm. somebody who, you know, has a good, uh, a good circle has a great church has a good youth group has good people in their life that they can depend on and that really is what i have seen over and over again is what makes or breaks the healing process of what helps them fully recover because some people don't have those people in their life and it's just such a devastating thing because that is the thing that maybe can keep them from fully healing or you know, can make it just worse altogether. So I really appreciate you mentioning that because that is huge, having community. Yeah, that, yeah community is, is a tremendous, even if it's, if it's a formal group or an informal group or a home group at your church, community and connection is, is powerful. God intended it to be that way. I can be very healing. So I wanted to go into uh, my next question. Um, what are some of the things that our listeners need to understand about working or ministering to someone who has experienced trauma and how can we minister to them? And I know we, we just mentioned if you are stuck and you are struggling, and I really want people to hear this, is that you need to go to a professional. Mm -hmm. You know, there is just a level that, especially depending on the trauma that you've gone through and you really just cannot move forward. It is debilitating. There are so many symptoms bypass everything else <laughs> and get to somebody who is a professional who has those letters behind their name and it's worth their weight and gold. I, I know that personally as a person that has gone through counseling, um, it having a professional is just, it is necessary. But what can we do? And I know we've talked about this and you are a pastor's wife and you, you and your husband minister what does that kind of look like? And what do people need to know about how to help people through trauma? That's, I love this question, Lorraine, because I think it helps us as ministers to become more aware of people. And as I said earlier, I think realizing the prevalence of trauma is really important, whether it's a big T, like a real, like a severe trauma or a little T, like everybody has painful past learning, right? Um, I think being aware of how prevalent it is will help you and guide you on how to love your neighbor mm -hmm. and to treat these people when, when you're ministering to them. So uh, like uh, when I'm doing trauma-informed care, I I want to be really careful to invite people to do things. I don't tell them what to do because that might be very triggering for someone. So like, I invite, like, are you comfortable doing that? No, that's a, like we, when, for example, praying for people in the altar, I'm a big fan of having conversation with people mm -hmm. before their eyes are closed and you just came right in. So I, I'm not saying that the spirit can move. I'm saying that take a second. Make sure they know you're there. Lay your hand on their hand or their arm or something and say, I'd really like to pray with you. Are you comfortable if I lay my hand on your head? These are really important things because um, depending, you don't know what their past is. God does. And so mm -hmm. hopefully he's sending the right people. But I think the number one thing that I can say um, to someone who's ministering to someone with trauma, whether you know they have trauma or not, is to listen. Listen to them. Be a good listener. Hear what they're saying. Um, it's say, 
say some like have leading questions where they they can be talking give them a voice be a good listener and um i think when we do that we really pay attention i once heard someone and i'm sorry that i can't give them credit for this because i think they might have even wrote a book about it but i can't remember their name someone from the uk i think but um they gave this great example and i'm just want to share it with you and pardon me if i botch it up a little bit but um if i asked you uh if you saw a man half naked in the street running barefoot like he didn't know where he was going, what would you think? And usually people will say, uh, you know, oh man, he's crazy. Um, and I said, well, would you help them? Well, probably not, you know, like I'm gonna just like, you know, call for help, right? And then I ask, okay, so what if you turn the corner and right around the corner is this very large male adult lion who happened to be chasing the man and has one of his shoes hanging out of his mouth. Now, would you help him? Mm-hmm. So we have to look at the context of things. We don't know people's past and you're never going to know everything about someone. So when you're ministering to people who have trauma, because probably everybody has a little bit, then you want to be a good listener. You want, don't, don't judge them. Be it like, Try to understand the context and also remember that they might not have language to use to express exactly what they felt. So just love your neighbor. Jesus said, love him, love your neighbor and, and do that by giving them space, being compassionate and really reaching out, having a conversation. And most of all, like I said before, being a really good listener. <laughs> and those are such wonderful things again. And, and while you're talking, you know, my brain is going hundred miles an hour thinking about how I identify with what you're saying, but you mentioned about praying for people in the altars. Mm-hmm. And I love that you said, you know, can I pray for you? And as for my own personal experience, you know, having have been disabled for many decades, um, I think about, Jesus always gives us examples about how we should do things. And I think so much about, you know, the blind man in the Bible that he came up to, Jesus came up to him and said, what would you have me to do for you? You know, he was God and he knew he was blind. They called him blind Bartimaeus for crying out loud, but (laughs) Jesus did not assume anything. He came to him and he said, what would you have me to do? And the man said, I would like to receive my sight. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, for me, many times in the altar and people always have good intentions and I never want people to misunderstand what I'm saying because everybody, we all, we mean well, but there's been so many times when I am in the altar and people have heard me say this, I'm in the altar and I am praying for something completely different. And somebody is coming up to me, lays their hands on me and is like, God, heal her. And I'm just like, what you know because that's not you know they don't know about right that's not what it's praying about they're just looking at what they see on the outside and that goes back to what you're seeing not looking at the context of just looking at what you're seeing Uh, they're just seeing this person that's in the wheelchair they have no clue anything about me but that's all they see which you know they're moved by compassion whatever but you when a minister comes up to me and says sister, I want to pray for you. What would you have me to pray for? Well, brother, I have sister, I have a long list, you know, <laughs> let me tell you, I brought it with me. <laughs> let me tell you, but you know, the thing that's going to surprise you is it's probably not going to be what you think it is, you know, 
what your mind automatically goes to. So I think that that's so important that people, you have to be able to listen and be willing to listen and to hear what they have to say and to want to know more about them instead of just seeing what you see physically as, you know, God, Samuel, God looks on the heart, not on the outside because man looks on the outside. And so, but that's kind of where my brain kind of went when you're mentioning this is just be able to listen and understand and not assume. (laughs) That's beautiful. Really good example too. Never assume. So I wanted to tie that into that, but I also wanted to go into, since we're already talking about um, what that looks like within the church setting, trauma in the church, and uh, how does trauma change a person's interaction with people or with God? And you kind of already mentioned some things, but what does that look like? Because somebody that has experienced some trauma is coming into the church or, or even has been in church for a while, but things are going to be different. It might look different even at first, and there's going to be some struggles. So can you kind of just talk to us about what that would look like? Um, absolutely. I think um, I feel like it's taking a tiny little brush and like painting over the top of things basically, but unresolved or unprocessed trauma, it, it keeps people from being able to engage and able to learn. And uh, as I said earlier, probably most significantly unable to see other people's points of view. Um, so being able to coordinate your thinking with feeling, and that's a really scary and lonely place to be. So like that is going to change a person's interaction with other people and most certainly with God. And um, I'll just add a little bit here. When I'm dealing with Christian clients who come with trauma, I think we begin usually process, like the processing usually begins with the why. Why did this happen to me? Where was God? Why, why did he allow this? You know, we have to kind of come to terms with that a little bit. And so it does, trauma does change people's interactions with people. They're afraid they're, they're, they're like hyper aroused all the time. They have this hypervigilance They They don't necessarily feel safe. Um, and most certainly they have some questions that um, they want to ask God. And I think, you know, he's close to the pain. And, and he's not afraid of it. And we can ask him. And I love being able to lead clients through that. I had a client one time that was talking about receiving the Holy Ghost. And, um, and they, they had a very funny way of describing what they thought receiving the Holy Ghost was. And, and then they said, you know, when someone comes, you go to the front and someone lays their hand on your back and, um, and you pray. And she said, yeah, that did work and carefully listening to her and and explaining what like this relationship that God wanted to have with her and why it's not something that you do it's something that happens to you right like in a good way and um and after a few moments of talking um she said you know I think I think I need a repair Hmm. and I and because I was at that moment, I'm not always a good listener, but at that moment, I was being a really good listener. I said, you know, I think you're exactly right. God mm. wants all of that. And then he wants to come in and live inside. You know, like he, he was there all the time. And we just need to acknowledge that. So it does change uh, people's interactions um, with God as well. Uh, but there is hope and there can be healing for sure. Mm-hmm. And so going into 
my last question before we kind of go into our closing remarks and just piggybacking off of this is what would you tell a Christian who has experienced trauma? What would you say to them? Somebody just, I don't, I don't know, somebody I'm thinking they just came back from a military experience or they were in a traumatic car accident where somebody they loved died or, or they were sexually assaulted in some way. And they're just kind of trying to just put this together, just a recent thing. What would you tell a person who has experienced trauma and how would you encourage them? So like, uh, that definitely piggybacks off of what I was just saying, like a a few minutes ago um, about that client, but I think I would tell them um, that I see them, Mm -hmm. that I hear them. Remember being a good listener is really important. I, I would tell them, I see them, I hear them. And this is a really big one um, that I can handle. Because a lot of times people don't talk about things because they don't feel like anyone can handle it because it was painful for them. So, you know, they don't want your pity or your sympathy. I, I can look them right in the eye and I can sit there and I can listen to them and I say, I can handle your pain. And then I want to tell them that God is there and he's not scared of the pain either. He's so close to it. Uh, and his love is unfathomable. And I think if, if someone like that comes and, and they're clearly there's a void or a deficit for them and they're thirsting for something. And I want to ask them, if you're thirsty for a drink, consider the woman at the well. And what all trauma was, was probably obvious externally in, in her life. And then take a drink of the living water. Jesus is right there. He purposefully went through there to go minister to one person, not masses. And you'll never thirst again. I think that's what I would say. I see you. I hear you. And I've heard that. And that is one of the things I'm so glad you said, because I've heard that in recent years. And I tell people that I see you. I hear you. You, It doesn't mean that I went through the same thing. I don't understand because we don't always understand what people have. But just to be acknowledging somebody's pain. I see you. I hear you. Those are pretty powerful words more than I think that we know. It's like some people don't want they just want to be heard. They just want to know that their pain matters and that they're not being overlooked. Um, Absolutely. I can handle the pain. Telling someone that, that can, you, can, you can see someone melt into a puddle pretty fast to tell them that you can handle their pain uh, because, because they feel like no one can. And it's a lonely, lonely place to do, to be. And if I can tell them you're not alone and I can handle your pain, then this is what happens, Lorraine. We save lives. Mm-hmm. because people sometimes people feel squeamish you tar- start to tell people and they can't handle it they just like oh okay let's change the subject now because some people are just very uncomfortable but you know <laughs> right right just <laughs> be be that person that can handle that that's very powerful and I just wanted to go into our closing remarks because I enjoy my time with you. I know our podcast listeners have enjoyed, you know, the other podcasts as well as anxiety, but this one on trauma, but are there any last things that you want to, our, our listeners to know or want to say? I, I, I don't, I think I want people to know that trauma, again, just repeating what I've said earlier, I think trauma is not the event that happened, but rather it's like 
It's how you feel about yourself after. And trauma doesn't have to have a living legacy in your life. You can overcome. Just like that woman I was talking to, I think I need a repair in here before. And I'm like, absolutely, there's this repentance that, that happens. And we live in a fallen and in a in a simple world and this is how trauma enters the world and we have so many questions of why but we also aren't meant to stay here but while we're here we're living through this and you can be healed you can have healing you can walk through this you do have someone next to you there is a hope trauma is horrific it's terrifying. Some of the things that people say to me in my, in my session are so surprising. And I'm like, God, give me the strength to be a healing agent for you because trauma is terrible. I hate it. I hate it so much, but it's a reality and it's very, it's more prevalent than we think. And so uh, in my closing remarks, I would say, don't let trauma, don't let the enemy tell you to believe the lies that trauma will tell you about yourself. Instead, just believe that you are a child of God, that you are washed in the blood of the lamb and that you can find healing. And it happens in degrees many times. It's not a leapfrog. You're not leaping over and many times it happens in degrees. So I think that's what I would probably leave the listeners with as far as trauma goes. Amber Keir, thank you so much again for being my guest. And this has been a blessing to me personally. If no one else, you have been a blessing to me. But I know that for all of you that are listening um, and gotten to this point in this podcast, you have been blessed and have gotten some practical things to think about and to do and to working through your own trauma or helping somebody else. So... Thank you all for listening to the Exchange Podcast. I'm signing off today, Dr. Lorraine. God bless everybody.